0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Martin Luther's Five Solas, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. And good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here this morning. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 15. Uh, for those of you who like to read your Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use the Version Bible app. If you sign into there and go to the menu, you can find the events page. And in the events page, you can find our live notes. So it's stuff on the screen and other stuff as well, and can interact on there. You can send stuff. You can take notes. It's a really great app. So we encourage you to use that. This year, 2017, this marks the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation was an international movement about returning to the Bible, about putting the Bible in the hands of the people. And what happened at that time is that as people read the Bible, as they got their hands on the Word of God and they read it for themselves, they rediscovered the gospel. And their lives as a result were changed and history was changed as a result. And you know, this is something we very much believe in here at Whitefields is that if you will come to the Word of God, if you will read the Bible, if you will find in the Bible the good news of Jesus Christ, then your life will be changed forever as well. That's why we're here uh, this morning too. So for the anniversary of the Reformation, we are taking five weeks. It's kind of a mini-series that we're doing. And we're taking five weeks and a break from our series that we were in the middle of, which was a study through the book of Hebrews. And we're looking at the five core biblical teachings which were at the heart of the Reformation. The Reformers kind of coined them into five slogans, which they called the five solas. Sola, by the way, means only or alone. Last week, we looked at the, at the first of those, which is kind of the foundation for all of them, and as sola scriptura, which means that scripture alone is our highest authority. This week, we're going to be looking at the next of these five, which is sola fide, which means uh, faith alone, and we're going to be talking about what it means and how it is that we can be made right with God according to Bible. So we're going to read this morning from Genesis chapter 15, and we'll begin by looking at the first six verses. So please read along with me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have not given me offspring and a member of my household to be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, so many shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is living, your word that is active, and your word that has effect on our lives when we come to you and we hear it and we interact with it. So, Lord, this morning, Lord, you're, you tell us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So, Lord, this morning we ask that you would build faith in us, that you'd teach us what it means to have faith. And, Lord, that the object of our faith would be Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would speak to us. Let us be not only instructed, but Lord, would you do a transformative work in our hearts and our minds. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a young man, his name was John, and John was traveling on the way to start a new job. John was from England originally, Uh, that's where he had grown up, but this job was in America, in the state of Georgia to be exact, and he was traveling there by boat John, by the way, he was a pastor. This job that he was going to take was the job to take over a church and be the pastor of a church. And he was asked, because they knew he was a pastor, they asked him to please be the chaplain on board the ship as they were traveling across the ocean. And John heartily agreed. But as that ship was traveling from England to America... They got caught in a storm at sea, and the storm got so bad that they feared for their lives. In fact, they were quite sure, even the captain was sure, that they weren't going to make it. Also on board this ship, by the way, was was another group of people, and that group of people, they were going on a mission trip. They were going on a mission trip, uh, and their group was called the Moravians, and they were on their way to America to minister to Native Americans. Now, John, of course, was the chaplain of the ship. He's the one who's supposed to be there, right? He's supposed to be strong for the other people to look to him and, and be encouraged and have faith. And yet, as John faced the possibility of his own death, he found himself completely freaked out, racked with anxiety, racked with fear, and panicking. But yet he looked over at this group of missionaries from these German missionaries, these Moravians, and their reaction took him by surprise because what they did is in the midst of this storm, here he was freaking out, afraid of dying, totally panicking, and yet these, this missionary group, these Moravians, they gathered together and they calmly sang worship songs for the entirety of the storm. Now, after the trip was over, John went over and asked the leaders of this group, you know, how is it that they were able to have so much confidence and so much peace in the face of calamity? And, and the man said, well, it's easy. We have faith in Jesus. Uh, we know that if we die, we're going to be with him, you know, like, like it says in the Bible, like Paul the Apostle, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the man asked him, well, John, don't you have faith in Christ? And John said, oh, uh, yeah, totally, I, absolutely lots of faith tons but later he wrote in his journal and it's recorded that he said I said yes but I fear that those words were in vain you see he had said yes because I mean how weird is that if you're the pastor right how ridiculous is that if you're the chaplain on board the ship and yet you don't have faith in Christ and, and yet he, he was sort of torn because he found himself that his faith had been tested and in a way he had failed because if he really did have faith in Christ, then why was he so afraid of dying? That incident and that question, it plagued him, it haunted him for years to come. See, here he was uh, a pastor, a missionary, in a way he had gone to America. He had come to Georgia to convert others to Christianity, but more and more he wondered if he was even a Christian at all. And he actually came to the point where he was convinced that he was not. After two years, he quit his job. You can imagine two years of feeling like a phony, like a fake, being the pastor and yet wondering the whole time if you even believe any of this stuff. And he resigned from his position as pastor of the church and he got back on a boat and he went back home to England. He went back home confused, disappointed, he felt lost, disoriented, And on top of all of it, he was now unemployed, right? He was an ex-pastor, and he had no idea what he was gonna do next with his life. Maybe you figured out who that man is already, maybe not. His name was John Wesley, John Wesley. And before, you know, what's interesting about Wesley is that before he had become a pastor, before he had gone to America as a missionary, John had been a student at Oxford University, and when he was at Oxford, he had started a club for Christians, him and his brother Charles, They had started a Christian club called the Holiness Club. And that's what the club was about. It was a club for students who didn't want to just be Christians, but they wanted to be hardcore Christians, right? They wanted to be serious about God. These were people who were all in, all the way, and no compromise. And here's what you had to do to be part of the Holiness Club. You had to take a vow. And here's what your vow consisted of. You had to take a vow to live a holy life and not to sin. You had to take a vow to take communion every single week. Your vow was that you would pray every single day, and you would visit prisons once a week, and you would preach the gospel to the prisoners, and finally, you were required to, if you were in this club, to spend three hours every day reading the Bible. Three hours every day. And Wesley had been one of the organizers of this club. This was, you know, him and his brother, this was their idea. We're going to be hardcore. We're going to be all in, no compromise, and we're going to gather people and we're going to tell them, it's all about holiness. Let's be holy unto the Lord. And and here he was when he was in college, he considered himself, you know, to be pretty hardcore in his faith. And he looked down his nose at other Christians who he considered not to be as committed as he was, who didn't read their Bibles for three hours a day like he did. And his crowning achievement of his life and the thing that he would kind of say the jewel in his crown was when he had gotten on that ship to go to America as a missionary. I mean, how much more hardcore can you get, right? How much more commitment is there than going overseas to a foreign land and being a missionary? Is that not the greatest, most extreme thing that you can possibly do for God? And yet on that boat, on his way to America, on route to being a missionary... When that storm hit and he had come face to face uh, with death, he came face to face with the reality that in spite of everything he had been doing, in spite of all his efforts, he hadn't actually gotten closer to God at all. In spite of everything he was doing, his efforts to, to try hard and, and, and get close to God, he, he hadn't. He hadn't gotten any closer to God at all. And when he quit his job as a pastor and a missionary, and he returned to England with his tail between his legs, you could say. He wrote this in his journal when he arrived in England. He said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? Who and what will deliver me from this evil heart of mischief? Here was the crushing irony of it all. He's the guy who started the holiness club Right, He had done everything he could to be so holy so that he could be right with God, and it wasn't enough. There was still evil in his heart, and he knew that as long as there was evil in his heart, that he was not right with God. And this was the reason why he had panicked on the boat in the storm that day, because he feared that if he died that day, he would have gone to hell he knew that there was sin in his life there was evil in his heart and sin and evil separated him from a holy God and he in his exasperation says who and what can save me what could he do he had done everything he could possibly think of he had tried his hardest to be holy to be committed to do everything he could right I mean he had read in his bible and prayed every single day he didn't smoke he didn't chew he didn't go out with girls who do he had even become a missionary What else could he possibly do? What else could God ask him from him? After his return to England, John Wesley, now an unemployed ex-pastor, he never forgot that encounter that he had with those people on the boat, those Moravian missionaries, those people who had something that he looked at and said, I don't have that, but I want it. I know that I need it. They have something that I don't, and I, I want it. And he actually found out that there was a group of these Moravians who met in London. And so he found out where they met. They met on a place called Aldersgate Street, which is still there in London today. It's a, they had a small rented facility where they would have evening meetings. They called it a society. And they would read passages from the Bible. They would do kind of what we talk about, like Bible study in the evenings. And so he found out about this Moravian thing and he, he said, okay, fine. He, he, one day he pulled himself together and one evening he decided... He's going to go. So he went down to Aldersgate Street. He found the number of the building. He went into the building, and he sat down in the room and listened. And that night, they were reading aloud a text which was written by Martin Luther. It was the commentary that Martin Luther had written to Paul's letter to the Romans. You see, when Martin Luther, 200 years earlier, had translated the Bible into German, he had written a preface to each of the books. Not every one, but a lot of the books of the Bible. He had written a preface to it, you know, kind of summarizing what it was about and, and giving some commentary on it. And so that night, these Moravians, in, in their gathering, in their society, they were reading aloud Martin Luther's preface to the letter to the Romans. You know, Martin Luther, like I said, he had lived 200 years earlier during the Reformation. And, and yet, Martin Luther and John Wesley really had a lot in common. Like Wesley, Martin Luther had tried very hard to be good and to make himself acceptable to God. Luther had given up a career as a lawyer in order to become a monk. And Luther had spent hours every day in prayer and confession, doing everything that he could. And like Wesley, Luther had gotten to the point of exasperation of hopelessness and frustration feeling like he could never do enough he could never be good enough he could never do what it takes to be acceptable to god but then something had happened to martin luther he he had read the bible and he had specifically read romans and when he had discovered When he read Romans, what he discovered was contrary to what he had always thought, contrary to what he had been told, contrary to the way that most people believed. the Bible actually taught that the way to become right with God is not by your own efforts. It's by trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. You see, when you do that, the Bible says that God accounts it to you as righteousness. That's what we just read about Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Let me tell you what Romans has to say about it. Romans chapter three, starting in verse 21, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, check this out, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift that the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received, how? By faith. And then in Romans chapter four, it says this, for what does the scripture say? And this will remind you where we started. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, as Martin Luther read Romans, the entire Bible finally made sense to him everything began to fall into place. He came to realize that the, the message of the entire Bible is this, that salvation and being right with God is not something you can earn. It's not something you can merit. It's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you in Christ. In other words, salvation is a gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But God has done it for you because he loves you. And all you have to do is accepted by faith. So in his preface, in his commentary on Romans, which was being read aloud that night at that meeting on Aldersgate Street, Martin Luther explained the basic points of the book. He summarized them. He said, here's what the book is about. It begins by telling us God is holy, just, and pure, and therefore he must judge sin. He can't overlook sin. And that's a problem for us because it's not just that we sin. It's not just that we commit sins. It's that we are sinners in our very nature but the good news of the gospel is that God loves you and Jesus died for you and because of what he did you can be saved and forgiven and you can have absolute confidence and peace because your salvation doesn't depend on you it doesn't depend on what you do it depends on what Jesus did for you so then what does it mean to live by faith what does it mean to have faith here's what Luther said in that preface he said faith Is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. A living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. And as John Wesley was sitting there in that night listening to this, something changed inside of him. And he wrote this in his diary. In that evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone, Christ alone for my salvation, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. As he heard that message of the gospel, Wesley found the assurance that he had been looking for for all these years. He realized now that the problem had been that he was looking it within himself for assurance. But now he looked outside of himself. He looked to Christ. See, here's the thing. This is true for you and for me. If you are looking within yourself for assurance, you'll never have it. It's only when you look outside of yourself, it's only when you look to Jesus and what he did for you that you will have assurance. And see, this is why one of the rallying cries, one of the five rallying cries of the Reformation was, sola fide, faith alone. What faith alone means, by the way, it doesn't mean that we don't have works. What it means is that the way you receive forgiveness of sins, the way that you are made right with God is by faith alone in Jesus and what he did to save you. See, everybody agrees on the faith part. It's the alone part that's really the issue here. Everybody agrees that we should have faith, but faith alone, what that means is that it's not faith plus something else that you have to do. It's not faith in Jesus plus good works that you have to fulfill. It's not faith in Jesus plus ceremonies that you have to go through. It's faith alone in Jesus and what he did for you. The text we read this morning is the very first direct mention of this principle of justification by faith that we find in the Bible. And this text then is quoted in several places throughout the Bible when, it, when they want to explain this principle of how righteousness is received by faith. It's mentioned in Romans chapter four, it's mentioned in Galatians chapter three, and it's mentioned in James chapter two. It's quoted there directly. And so what I'd like to do this morning is let's go back to the story in Genesis that we read the beginning of this morning, uh, at the beginning here, and let's look at it and let's consider what does it mean for us and for our lives today. So it begins with these words. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. So it's after these things. After what things? Well, if you look at the previous chapter, what you'll find is that Abraham just turned down an opportunity to get rich. In order to get rich, he would have had to kind of make a pact, make an alliance with the king of Sodom. But God had called Abraham to be set apart, to be different. God had a different path and plan for Abraham. And so Abraham said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not take this opportunity to get rich Instead, I'm gonna do what God has called me to do and what God wants me to do. I mean, you can kind of imagine it like this. What if someone said to you, hey, you know, I'll give you a million bucks if you'll just give up on your dreams and what God has called you to do. And Abraham said, no, I'm gonna stick with it. I'm gonna do what God called me to do, even if it means that I'm broke and semi-homeless, you know, I'm just gonna do it anyway. And in response to that, God said, Abraham, I saw that. I saw what you did there and I want you to know, Abe, it blessed my heart i i want you to know how much i i see that and it blesses me to know that you choose me over wealth and riches and security and he says abraham i want to encourage you with something i want to remind you that i am going to be with you that i am going to protect you and i am going to reward you nice right but look at how abraham responds you would think that abraham would like if god said to me i'd be like well awesome thank you you know Cool. But here's what Abraham says. He says, he kind of pushes back, right? He's like, wait a second. I mean, I hear you making these promises. I hear what you're saying. But when is this going to happen? Because I've been waiting for a while now. You see, a few years before this, God had come to Abraham back in Ur of the Chaldees, which is where Abraham was from. At the time, Abraham was an idol worshiper. He wasn't looking for God, but God came looking for him. And God looked at Abraham and he said, That's my guy. I'm going to do something special with him. And God spoke to Abraham and he said, Abe, it's me, God Almighty, Lord of heaven and earth. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop worshiping idols. I want you to worship me and I want you to come and follow me. I want you to take my hand and I'm going to take you where I'm going to take you and I'm going to bless you more than you could ever imagine. I'm going to make you into a great nation and through you, all nations, all people of the world will be blessed. You see, here was God's plan. Starting with Abraham, God was going to create a new nation from scratch. And through that nation, he would reveal himself to the world. And ultimately, through that nation would come the Savior of the whole world. The only problem was, Abraham was old. And his wife was was also no spring chicken, right? They didn't have any kids. And to make it even worse, they were past the age when you can actually have kids. But Abraham said, you know what? I'm going to choose to trust God, even though it doesn't seem very likely, even though I don't know how it's going to work out. I'm going to choose to trust God, even if the odds are stacked against us. But now, here we are, a couple chapters later, and a a couple years have passed. A lot of time has passed, and still no kids. And so here's God just reiterating the promise, and Abraham's like, yeah, okay, but when? Because I've been waiting for a while already. It's really hard to become a great nation when you don't have any kids. And so when God speaks to Abraham here in chapter 15, Abraham voices his concern, he voices his frustration. He says, but Lord, I want to believe, but I don't see anything happening. I'm still childless. I want to believe that what you're telling me is true, but I'm struggling because I don't see it. And so it says there in verse five that God took Abraham outside and he said, Abe, look up at the stars. If you've ever been camping, if you've ever been driving in a really remote place at night, you know what this is like. You get away from the lights of the city You look up in the middle of the night, if it's a clear sky, you see so many stars. And that's what Abraham would have seen. And God says, Abe, that's how many descendants you're gonna have. And it says right there in verse six, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. So what is righteousness? Righteousness means right standing before God. Another way to put it is this. You could say, righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors. I'll say that again. Righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors. Kind of like a resume. That's what a resume is. It's a performance record that opens doors for you. When you apply for a job, you hand them a resume. You say, here are the things that I've done. Here's, here's the things that I have accomplished and achieved. These are the things that prove that I am worthy to be accepted to this position. And every religion in every culture believes that this is how it works with God as well. That if you want to connect with God, you get out your resume, your moral performance record, and you present it to God and you say, here's the reason why you should accept me because I have done these things, I have accomplished these things, I've been good enough, therefore you should accept me. But see here with Abraham and then throughout the Bible, we see a completely different way of approaching God. A way which says, No matter what, your performance record can never be enough. No matter what you've achieved, no matter how good you've tried to be, it can never be enough, but because God loves you, there is a righteousness which is from God, a validating performance record that will open the door. There is a validating performance record that is good enough, and God will give that to you as a gift if you will humble yourself and receive it by faith. Did Abraham deserve this? No. Not at all. He was an idol worshiper. That's a terrible resume. But God offered Abraham a gift. And Abraham received it by faith. And God looked at Abraham and said, you're righteous. It says that God counted it to him as righteousness. That's an accounting term. It's a banking term. Imagine if you're broke. Some of you guys are like, it doesn't take a lot of imagining. I can imagine that. So imagine you're broke. And then a wealthy person transfers all of their assets into your account. That's the picture of what God has done for us with righteousness when we put our faith and our trust in him. You're bankrupt and he transfers all of his assets into your account. And so what does this do for our lives? Three things, this is what we're gonna look at for the remainder of our time here. Three things, if righteousness is a gift that is received by faith, then three things. Number one, it can't be earned. Number two, you can rest from your striving number three, you are free to serve God and others for the right reasons. We're going to look at each of these as we go on. So first of all, if righteousness is a gift that you receive by faith, that means that it can't be earned. And I want to show you the rest of this story because it's really interesting. Look what happens next in, here in chapter 15 of Genesis. If you go down to like verse 8, Abraham says, Okay, God, I believe you. I believe what you're saying. But is there anything that you can do for me to kind of, you know, Help me to be sure that you're really going to do this. And so God says, okay, I'll tell you what. And over the next few verses, verse 9, he says, here's what I want you to do. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, cow. Bring me a three-year-old goat. And bring me a three-year-old ram. And then bring me a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Super weird, but okay, whatever. He's going to do it. So it says the next verse, verse 10. So Abraham brought all these things. And then what did he do? He cut them in half, right? He killed these animals and cut them in half. And then he laid each half opposite the other half. Uh, And the birds, he did not cut in half. He just killed them and left them laying there, I guess, right? So what is going on? Super strange, right? Here's what's going on. This is an ancient custom And that's why when God said, hey, I want you to bring me these things, he didn't have to tell Abraham to cut them in half. Abraham already knew to cut them in half because that's what you would do in this ancient custom. He knew exactly what this was. You see, in the ancient world, you didn't sign contracts the way that we sign contracts. This is how you make a contract. Cut some animals in half. And what you would do is you would take these animals, you slaughter them, you lay them out. Create a pathway between them. And then the two parties who were entering into this agreement would walk down this path of blood and dead animals. And they would meet in the middle and they would state their agreement, what they were agreeing to do. And then the agreement would be, you could say, sealed in blood. And essentially what it was saying is this you're basically saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, if I don't do what I said I would do, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I be killed. May my blood be shed. May I be put to death. It was just a very dramatic acting out of making this point that you were dead serious about what you were promising to do. But check out what happens next. In verse 12, we read this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then in verse 13 through 16, God repeats his promises to Abraham. And then in verse 17, here's what happened. When the sun had gone down and it was dark behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham I want you to notice the wording there it's very intentional on that day the Lord made a covenant With Abraham, it doesn't say on that day Abraham and the Lord entered into an agreement. It doesn't say Abraham and the Lord made a decision together. No, it says the Lord entered into a covenant. He did it, it's one-sided, that's the whole point. See, he had put Abraham to sleep. The way this was supposed to work usually is that the two parties would meet halfway, right? It was 50-50, you come halfway, I'll come halfway, we'll meet in the middle. But God stepped in and he put Abraham to sleep, you can't meet somebody halfway when you're asleep. And then while Abraham's asleep and indisposed, God walks through that aisle way of blood and he enters into the covenant by himself. He didn't meet Abraham halfway. It wasn't 50-50. God did it all himself. And so what was there left for Abraham to do? Like he wakes up and he's like, okay, I'm ready to do my part. And what does God say? I already did it. I already entered into the covenant. So what's there left for Abraham to do? Nothing. By the time he woke up, everything's done. The only thing he was possibly able to do was just believe, was just to trust that God indeed was going to do what God had sworn by himself that he would do. And the message for us is this, that if you come to God, if you want to come to God, it's not gonna be 50-50. It's not gonna be you meeting him in the middle The message of the gospel is this that like Abraham, you have an impossible problem that you cannot solve, something that you cannot fix. And yet, God, in his goodness and love, comes in and he does everything. So, what is your part in this? Your part is this all you can do is believe trust, have faith in what he said and what he's done for you on your behalf. You see, what we see here with Abraham is a little preview. It's a foreshadowing. It's a pattern of how God works and what is to come in Jesus. This is the way that God works. This is the way that righteousness is transferred to a person. You can't earn it. It's not something that that you can deserve. No, it's something that has to be given to you by God and you receive it by faith. You see, this message that the way of receiving salvation, the way of receiving righteousness is by faith alone. This is something that Jesus talked about a lot. He said, the mo- most famous verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, believes, would not perish but have eternal life. We read about another time when some people came to Jesus and they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires of us? And Jesus responded and he said, Here are the works of God to believe in him whom he sent. To believe. And this brings up a very important question. If faith is so important, clearly it is, then what exactly does it even mean to have faith? Furthermore, how much faith do you have to have in order to be saved? Because there are times when maybe you feel, maybe I feel, that our faith isn't very strong. That we might wonder if we have enough faith to be saved or or for God to work. But here's what I want you to remember. You are not saved by your faith. You're not saved by the amount of your faith. You're not saved by the strength of your faith. You know what you're saved by? You're saved by the object of your faith, who is Jesus. So then, what does it mean to have faith? The Reformers said that there are three ingredients involved in faith. Three ingredients. They broke it down this way. They said knowledge, assent, and trust. Three things. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge means knowing about something, right? Like how can you believe in something? How can you trust in something if you don't know that it exists? So knowledge. The second part is assent. This is the intellectual part where you say, okay, in theory, I believe that that's true. And then the third element is super key. And this is where a lot of people miss it. It's the element of trust. In other words, not only do I know that it exists, not only do I agree with this concept in theory, but I go beyond that and I entrust myself to it. I put myself in its hands. I heard about a story, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard this story about this guy who was a tightrope walker and he would walk the tightrope over Niagara Falls. Here he was, there's a huge crowd gathered on both sides of the falls and he's walking across Niagara Falls and every time he would walk across, people would cheer, they would go crazy. They they were just absolutely excited to watch this guy do it. And, you know, he'd come to the other side, the crowd would go nuts, they'd go wild. And then he'd do it again, and they'd go wild again. And then he got a wheelbarrow, and he would push the wheelbarrow across there, and he'd have the wheel balanced on the the tightrope that he was walking. You know, it was an incredible thing. I mean, one move either way in either direction, and he's going to be a goner, but he would make it, and the people would go crazy. And then he'd get to the one side, and then he finally decided he's going to ask a question. He said, okay, who thinks that I can do it again? And everybody's, oh yeah, you got this. You can totally do it. And he says, okay, now check this out. Who thinks that I can put a person in this wheelbarrow and push the person over to the other side? And they're all like, that's crazy. But yeah, you got it. You can do this. You can do anything. You're amazing. And then of course, what did he do next? He said, okay, you. He picks out somebody in the crowd and said, okay, you think I can do it? I want you to get in the wheelbarrow and I'm gonna push you across the waterfall. You see, that's the point where you're no longer just knowing that this guy can do it, and you're no longer just assenting to the fact that he probably could push somebody across in a wheelbarrow, but you're actually entrusting yourself to it and saying, okay, I'm going to put myself in that place of trust. That's what we're talking about when we talk about faith. It's those three elements... Faith in Jesus is made of those three elements as well. Knowledge, knowing who he is and what he did. Assent, like assenting intellectually to the fact that the things that the gospel says are probably true, that they work in theory. And then trust, which is when you move beyond the theoretical and you move into the personal and you entrust yourself to him and to the gospel. That is the kind of faith that we're talking about when it says that salvation is received by faith alone. So secondly, if righteousness is a gift that you receive by faith, what that means for you is that you can rest from your striving. You can rest from your striving. When you look at a person like John Wesley, or even when you look at Martin Luther, what you see is that before they came to understand the gospel, their lives were characterized by striving. There was a struggle. They were always struggling, always feeling, trying as hard as they could to be good enough but never getting there. No matter how hard they tried, it was never good enough, and they knew it. And so they tried harder and they tried harder and they did more until they became absolutely depressed and discouraged and exhausted. And really, this message of try harder, do more, do better, that's what most religions really say if you, if you boil them down. Here, I'll give you a quote from Buddha. This is Buddha's final teaching to his disciples. Like, he's going to stop teaching now and he says, this is the last thing I want to say to you before I go. Here's what He said, behold this is my last advice to you strive without ceasing to earn your salvation what an incredible burden now I want you to contrast that with the final words of Jesus on the cross as he breathed his last breath where he said it is finished I did it I earned your salvation you see the way that most people think is that right standing before God is a matter of addition and subtraction you add good works you take away the bad stuff And that's how you'll get good standing before God. If you do that, God will accept you. Adding the good things, subtracting the bad things, boom, you're done. But the gospel says no. No, you could never do that. Rather, salvation is not a matter of addition and subtraction. Salvation is a matter of substitution the message of the gospel is that Jesus substituted himself for you. He gave his life as a ransom for you. He shed his blood for your sins and your standing before God is based on what he did for you on your behalf. And because of that, you can rest from your striving. I tell you this, if you're always looking to yourself, you're going to be riding a roller coaster the roller, it'll be a terrible roller coaster, by the way, a terrible roller coaster of pride and despair. When you're up, like things are doing, you're doing well, you're reading your Bible three hours a day, and you're praying, and you're being awesome, you're going to feel puffed up with pride. You're going to look down your nose at other people who aren't as committed, who aren't as hardcore, who aren't there where you are. When you fail, you'll be absolutely crushed in despair. We see that in John Wesley's life. We see that exact thing. He's in college. He forms this holiness club, and he looks down his nose at other people who aren't where he's at. But later on, he wonders if he's even a Christian at all. He's crushed to the dust with despair. And this roller coaster, by the way, this is how most people live, even people who say that they're not religious. This is the way that most people live. People live this way in their careers They live it in their families, and they live it in regard to their accomplishments. When they're doing well, they're filled with pride, and when they fail, they're crushed. Why? Because they don't have an identity, a status before God. They don't understand that who they are in God is hidden in Christ, and it can't be changed. It's only when you understand the gospel that your identity, that your status before God, it doesn't rise or fall with your performance because it depends not on what you do, but on what he did for you. When you really understand that, you can rest from your striving. You can rest in the salvation that God has given you in Christ. But I wanna say this, there's a difference between resting from your striving and resting from doing good works. God doesn't call us by any means to rest from doing good works, but here's what he does do. When you understand the gospel, this is our third point. If righteousness is a gift which you receive by faith, then you are free to serve God and serve others for the right reasons. One thing we learned by looking at the life of John Wesley is that it's totally possible to do good things for the wrong reason. It's totally possible to do the right things for wrong reasons. Like for example, look at John Wesley. Here he is reading his Bible for three hours a day. Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing to read your Bible? Absolutely, I I wanna read my Bible more. Here's John Wesley, he's praying every day. He's trying to be holy. He's trying to avoid doing things that are wrong in God's eyes. Is that good? Of course that's good. He became a pastor, he became a missionary. Aren't those good things? absolutely. But here's the problem. He was doing those things for the wrong reason. He was doing those things in a desperate attempt to get God's attention. Look at me, God. You know, to earn God's love, to earn God's favor. And at the end of the day, you could say, at the end of the day, when you really boil it down, he wasn't even doing those things for God as much as he was doing them for himself. He wasn't doing those things for the sake of other people who he was serving. He was serving them really from an underlying selfish motivation. He was really doing it for himself in order to get something in return from God. And here's what happens when you understand the gospel, that you don't have to earn your way before God because Jesus already did it for you. You no longer have to promote yourself to God and promote who you are in God's eyes. You can actually begin to love and to serve people and to love and to serve God for God's sake and for those people's sake and no longer for your own selfish motivations, not only to get something out of it for yourself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, when when you really understand the gospel, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, what it does, it takes a hold of your heart. He says it constrains you. No longer will you live for yourself, but you will live your life for him who for your sake died and rose again. You see, good works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. They're not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. True faith will always be manifested in outward ways. But that order is really important. It's really important which of those comes first and causes the other. See, the real difference between the Moravian missionaries and John Wesley on that boat that day, they were both going to the new world. They were both going as missionaries, but Wesley was going over there To prove himself he was going over there in order to get God to notice him in order to get God to accept him to get God to bless him the Moravians on the other hand they were going over there because they were moved by the gospel because they realized that God already had noticed them God already had blessed them God already had accepted them in Christ but I want you to know this that wasn't the end of John Wesley's story by the way See, after that evening at Aldersgate Road when he heard the gospel and he understood it and he said he received it by faith, he was moved into action. He got back into ministry and he traveled around England preaching the gospel. Do you know there are only a handful of towns in England to this day where John Wesley did not preach? He would travel around and he would preach the gospel. He would plant churches. God used him in an incredible way. But at that point, after he understood the gospel... His motivation for doing it was totally different. No longer was it out of fear. No longer was it a desperate attempt to earn God's favor. Now it was out of joy. It was a response of a heart that had come to know the love of God personally, that had come to hear and receive and know the good news of the gospel, that God saves sinners. And it's not we who save ourselves, but we simply receive by faith what Jesus has done for us. So let me ask you this in closing. Does any of this resonate with you? Have you ever found yourself doing good things, but for the wrong reasons? Have you ever found yourself trying to say, okay, God, I'll meet you in the middle. I'll do it halfway. I'll do my part. It'll be your grace and my works, and we'll come together. We'll meet in the middle. Or let me ask you this. Have you come to understand the gospel? Has the gospel taken hold of your heart? Does it move you to love and good works? Maybe there are some of you who say, you know, that thing about what faith is, knowledge, assent, and truth. I get the knowledge, I get the assent, but the, the trust part, that's where I need to take a step personally and entrust myself to him as my Lord. I need to receive the gospel by faith. I want to encourage you today to put your faith and your trust in Jesus and what he did for you, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the 500th time. I want to encourage you to do that today to rely on him, to cling to him, and to receive by faith what he has done for you. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. Lord, your grace that saves us, your grace that makes us new. And Lord, may we have that unwavering, unshakable confidence in your grace. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts? Would you make us into new people? Would you breathe into us new life and transform us? Lord, thank you for this promise, the justification, the righteousness. These aren't things that we have to earn or work for. Lord, these are things that you have given to us as a gift. May we receive them today by faith. May we cling to you. May we rely on you. May we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.